condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think. has reported from Gaza during Israeli operations cast lead in 0809 and pillar of defense in 2012. She has also visited Syria three times since April 2014, including independently on a journalist visa. You can find Ava's writings on Syria and Gaza at her blog in gaza.wordpress.com. Do we have Ava with us at the moment, guys? Not yet. Okay. We're going to try and get her on the line. I believe she's in Gaza. So it'll be very nice to speak with someone who's been there, still is there. One of the few brave souls from the West to actually go to Gaza and live with these people who've been suffering there for decades. Uh, our other guest is uh, Navid Nasser, as I mentioned earlier. He'll be on in the second hour of the show. Navid is in Europe at the moment, but he's from the U.S., originally from Iran, and he's been a political commentator on Middle Eastern affairs for some time, appearing on Lebanese and press TV. We're still working to get Ava on the line with us. In the meantime, I'll ask you to consider that um, while the refugee crisis of our time, certainly of this year, is the Syrian one, the one resulting in the fallout of what can only be described as a proxy war against Syria, uh, Syria itself has been home to I think millions, I'm not sure of a figure, Ava's going to classify this for us, but some millions of Palestinian refugees going back decades, really since uh, Israel first came on the scene after the Second World War. And this is a country that 
while portrayed as a barbaric regime in the West, has actually one of the few countries to Palestinian rights and to speak out on behalf of their interests. Of course, this is spun in the West, in particular in the Western media. And, well, short of being spun, it's, it's largely ignored. This isn't even mentioned. Of course, Syria isn't the only country housing many current Palestinian refugees, as well as their descendants going back a long time. But we're just going to try something out here, so we might have a few seconds of dead air. So yeah. Take we'll a break, everybody, a and maybe our Tim the Toolman Taylor can uh, play some music just for a second. Oh, where have you been, my blue-eyed son? And where have you been, my darling young one? I stumbled on the side of twelve misty mountains I've walked and I crawled on six crooked highways I've stepped in the middle of seven side forests I've been out in front of a dozen dead oceans I've been 10,000 miles in the mouth of a graveyard And it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard rain You're gonna fall Oh, what did you see, my blue-eyed son? And what did you see, my darling young one? I saw a newborn baby with wild wolves all around it. I saw a highway of diamonds with nobody on it. I saw a black branch with blood that kept dripping. So a room full of men with their hammers a-bleeding I saw a white ladder all covered with water I saw ten thousand talkers whose tongues were all broken I saw guns and sharp swords in the hands of young children And it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard and it's a hard, it's a hard rain are gonna fall Oh, what did you hear, my blue-eyed son? And what did you hear, my darling young one? Heard the sound of a thunder that roared out a warning I Heard the roar of a wave that could drown the whole world I heard one hundred drummers whose hands were a-blazing I heard ten thousand whispering and nobody listening 
heard one person starve, I heard many people laughing. I heard the song of a poet who died in the gutter. I heard the sound of a clown who cried in the alley. And it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard rains are gonna fall. Oh, what did you meet, my blue-eyed son? And who did you meet, my darling young one? I met a young child beside a dead pony. I met a white man who walked a black dog. I met a young woman whose body was burning. I met a young girl, she gave me a rainbow. I met one man who was wounded in love. I met another man who was wounded in hatred. And it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard rains are gonna fall. And what'll you do now, my blue-eyed son? And what'll you do now, my darling young one? I'm a-going back out for the rain starts a-falling I'll walk to the depths of the deepest dark forest Where the people are many and their hands are all empty Where the pellets of poison are flooding their waters Where the home in the valley meets the damp, dirty prison First guest, uh, Ben Harrison Joe, then introduce Ava Bartlett. Ava Bartlett is a Canadian freelance journalist and human rights activist. She's lived in the Gaza Strip since 2008, so nearly some seven years. She was aboard the Dignity Boat, which was one of the five free Gaza missions to successfully sail the Strip back then in 2008. Ava has been reporting from Gaza throughout the Israeli operations, whatever, cast lead in 08 and 09, and pillar of defense in 2012. She's also visited Syria some three times in the last couple of years including as a journalist um, uh, independently on a journalist visa. You can find her writings on Syria and Gaza at her blog, ingaza.wordpress.com. A very, very warm welcome to you, Ava Bartlett. Thank you very much, um, and thank you for your kind introduction. I, I do need to make one slight clarification, and that sure. is um, I actually did finally leave Gaza in March 2013, um, and due to the circumstances in Egypt and the Sinai Peninsula, that being my only point of entry, I have not been able to return to Gaza since then. I okay. see. Okay. So are you back in Canada now? Are you in, where are you? 
at the moment I'm in Canada. Okay. Um, in uh, late November, I'll be headed back towards Lebanon for a conference on Palestine, and hopefully in December back to Syria for a, a women's conference in Syria. Okay. So, so we have a, uh, just just to do some quick introductions here. I already introduced myself. I'm Joe. Uh, Neil was just talking to you a second ago, and we also have Harrison here. Hi, Ava. It's great to have you on. Thanks very much. Nice to meet you all. So um, you just said that uh, you weren't able to get back into Gaza. I haven't. I haven't actually um, tried this time since having left in, in March 2013, because uh, you know sources in the Sinai Peninsula have said virtually no foreigners are getting in through there. Um, I think there are probably exceptions for certain dignitaries or if you're with a certain NGO, but I'm not with an NGO. Um, and I've been told that due to the you know the security um, issues in Sinai, that's one of the reasons why people are not getting in. I don't know all the kind of the reasons behind it, but um, I haven't heard of any in independent people like myself getting in through Sinai since since I left. Uh huh. So when did your when did your interest in um, in Palestine, Palestinians, Gaza, etc. begin? I mean, uh, have you been was it a long time ago? I mean, maybe you can give us a bit of background on that. Sure. Um, I'm always quite upfront about the fact that for most of my adult life, I knew nothing about Palestine, let alone any other significant issues going on. Um, and it was just in my late 20s that I kind of woke up to actually knowing that, um, knowing the name Palestine and knowing the horrific atrocities that the Zionist entity is committing against Palestinians. Um, at that time, I was teaching abroad, teaching English abroad, paying off university debts. But I did start looking into, you know, trying to learn more about Palestine over the next couple of years. That was back in 2005. And finally, in 2007, I was able to go as an activist um, and do activist work throughout the West Bank um, in solidarity with Palestinians, witnessing some of the most brutal, um, heinous crimes by the so-called settlers, the colonists, and also by the Israeli army. Um, in, in all areas of the West Bank, in, in Bethlehem, in Hebron, in South Hebron, in Nablus, and in smaller villages, and just see the manifold um, means that they, they use to uh, oppress Palestinians, to you know take away any source of income, to to keep them separated from one another, and to really try to um, yeah oppress them, keep them from resisting this vile you know decades old occupation. Mm -hmm. So that that was when I first became interested, and then. Um, Having been um, arrested a couple of times, I was finally deported and banned from returning, um, but uh, was able to return or go to Gaza for the first time in uh, November 2008, as you mentioned, with the Free Gaza Movement. Okay. So, Ava, did you, so you spent five years in Gaza, is that correct? Uh, no, in fact, no. I spent a year and a half um, from having arrived in November 2008. I spent a year and a half following in Gaza then did leave and was able to go back and forth for another year and a okay. half until about March 2013. Okay. Well, can you give our listeners just uh, an idea of what the conditions are like living there? Because I think a lot of us in the West, we see some pictures and we might read some stories, but we don't really get an idea of what life is really like. Um, maybe you could just give us a snapshot of, of the conditions in Gaza, at least sure. at the time you were there. Yeah, and I, I lived, uh, initially I lived in Gaza City, sharing apartments with friends, and eventually I, I lived with a family in central Gaza, and I think that that was definitely a more um, um, accurate look at what, what Palestinians are enduring there. For example, 
at at the time, various times when I lived there for about a year and a half with this family, um, you know, we'd have no power for all but three or four hours a day, which means that that affects the water, you know, your ability to pump water. Because the way the water system works there for most people is that they pump water into rooftop tanks and then use them accordingly. But if you don't have power, you cannot do that. And not having power affects the hospitals, their ability to perform operations or, you know, run life-saving machines. Um, It also affects the sanitation because, um, unfortunately, because the Zionists have not allowed Palestinians to rebuild everything that the Zionists destroy every time they wage a war on Gaza, but also they haven't accommodated for natural population growth. They haven't allowed, I should say, for natural population growth. So the infrastructure is very antiquated, and you take something like sanitation, they don't have the means to treat their um, their waste, their sewage, so it's basically pumped into the sea. Last time I checked, um, you know, the, the rate was, um, what was it, 80, oh gosh, I think it was, oh, I'd, I'm going to mess this up now. I think it was 80 million liters per mm-hmm. day. I'd have to go back and check on that. But it's an obscene rate. It's being pumped in the sea. But when you don't have power, um, it gets, it accumulates and eventually overflows into the streets as it's happened many, many times. Then on top of that, you have the fact that the so-called Israel every year or two wages a brutal massacre on Palestinians. And the Palestinians have nowhere to go. And I experienced two of these and no, you know, the average Palestinian does not have a bomb shelter. And Israel's way of warning Palestinians that their house, if they get a warning at all, um, that their house is going to be bombed, is to bomb it lightly, like with a drone strike. Mm-hmm. But they also do the double tapping, and, you know, the Americans do that too. I'm sure the Saudis are doing that in Yemen. Um, but they they also do the, the strike where after a few minutes, people have come to help out, and those people get attacked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... But, you know, um, also, you know, aside from the times of massacre, which in, in which Israel uses um, prohibited weapons, chemical weapons, dart bombs, white phosphorus, again, it's all documented, and I'm sure you know that, but it's the daily life, too. It's the Palestinians feel isolated, and they are geographically, and often even via technology, they're isolated due to the power cuts. Um, you know, there's a growing sense of suffocation, of how, how the heck is this ever going to change, because certainly none of our countries are going to stop it, nor the so-called UN. Um, and then there's like you have even the people that are just trying to eke out a living, farmers and fishers coming under um, sniper fire, and this is something we experienced ourselves. Um, it's just Israel has truly created, um, has, has used every possible means possible to oppress and starve and uh, demoralize Palestinians in Gaza. Hmm. Do you, um, yeah, it's a, it's a horrible situation. I mean, it has been for such a long time. It's, uh, I think a lot of people in the world are, have kind of, that might, might care, have uh, faced with Israeli intransigence and, um, you know, just carrying on as if it doesn't matter what the world thinks. A lot, a, a lot of people um, kind of have just almost resigned themselves to, to the Palestinians being the perennial, uh, Kind of whipping boy of of almost of the world, you know, they're the ones who are repeatedly, unstoppably, for the past more or less sixty, seventy years, have been in the press as being brutalized by this so-called democracy in the Middle East, and uh, and nobody else does anything about it. You know, nobody cares. Everybody supports them. Uh, yeah, and you know, I actually I, I totally agree with that, um, and the fact that there's been so much propaganda against Palestinians and Arabs and Muslims in general, but. Um, you know, like you, you, you have, and you have it going on right now. All over 
occupied Palestine, you have people resisting with whatever means possible, whether it's um, stabbing their oppressor or throwing stones at their oppressor. Mm -hmm. Just this morning, I was reading um, about how an Israeli, a few days ago, in an Ida camp near Bethlehem, an Israeli jeep drove in and just blatantly announced, you stop throwing stones or we're going to gas you to death. We're going to, I mean, and this is not surprising. Of course, they're completely capable of it, but this is the level it's gotten to. Documented, like, calls for when, when Israel was massacring Gaza in summer of 2014. I can't remember the name of that horrible woman, but they, she was calling for the genocide mm. of Palestinians. And it's, it's so overt. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think people are confused or they're apathetic about it. You know, and it's extremely frustrating wondering how to break through that. But, you know, I, sorry, I guess the initial point I wanted to make was that, you know, the, the, the Gulf fiefdoms, criminal, corrupt, horrible Gulf fiefdoms, guilty mm -hmm. of war crimes themselves, have not supported Palestinians. But who has? Mm -hmm. the, the, the states and the groups that have supported Palestinians are being vilified. That is Iran, Hezbollah, Syria. Mm -hmm. They have been long time and true friends of Palestinians, and they're on. You know, they're totally being vilified in the media. Right. Yeah. What What's your um, What was your experience when you were when you were in Gaza of the authorities in Gaza uh, and how they were kind of running things or trying to keep uh, a handle on the on the situation that the Palestinian authorities. Um, I have to admit a great degree of political naivety when I went there. Um, hmm. My my. My opinion at the time was, well, Palestinians held an election in 26, I think, 2006, mm -hmm. and elected Hamas, and so therefore they have the right to be the leaders. And I, I mean, I still kind of agree with that in that sense, but I later came to realize what a nefarious organization, Hamas being part of the Muslim Brotherhood is, and the Muslim mm. Brotherhood has its tentacles all over, you know, Yemen, Syria, Palestine. Um, it's not for me as a non-Palestinian to say who they should elect. That's why I'm always a little bit wary about talking about it. But mm -hmm. I can say um, I saw a lot of corruption um, mm -hmm. amongst ministers in okay. the government in Gaza. Um, and there, I mean, there were demonstrations, um, say, on land day or against the Zionist border policies in which the, the security forces did come down pretty hard on the demonstrators for whatever reason. Um, I, it, it does pain me that both Fatah is so corrupt and Hamas is, again, part of Muslim Brotherhood, and I don't feel represents the Palestinian people. It, it pains me that they're stuck between these two choices, although there are other parties that have, like PFLP has at least, the moral integrity to, to serve the Palestinians and, um, and stand in solidarity with uh, Syria. But, yeah, um, I would say that there was growing disappointment with Hamas, over the years that I spent there, mm -hmm. um, from, from it's, as simple examples, I'd say these young men that go to the border regions to collect rubble because there's so much rubble in Gaza, <laughs> mm -hmm. but there's, no, there's virtually no cement. So what they do is they grind up the rubble and they use that in rebuilding. So this is one means of earning a living, although it's extremely dangerous because either they could be sniped at by the Zionist mercenaries or there might be an unexploded ordinance beneath the rubble. Or mm -hmm. um, what's happened also is, um, and this is told to me by friends that, knew the collectors personally is that they had risked they had gone to all this effort this labor gotten their their donkey cart load of rubble and were leaving and accosted by hamas who took the rubble for whatever reason they want to corner on the reconstruction industry mm. and said if we catch you doing this again you know we're going to fine you however many um shekels it was mm -hmm. so it's definitely not not the best party for people in gaza i even start to wonder if they're not somehow and 
there's probably people who've actually analyzed this, but if they're not somehow working in cahoots with, with the Israelis mm-hmm. in that they keep their power in Gaza. It's been suggested, and it, there's definitely some some basis, some valid basis. But I was stunned when it was uh, when I first learned that Hamas uh, was supportive of the efforts to ouster Assad from Syria. Yeah, I mean, I can't remember at what point it was Khalid Meshel left uh, their office in Damascus and went to what Qatar. One of yes. the, again, one of the corrupt regimes. But not only that, there are, and I, I will make the point that I do support resistance and Hamas resistance because they are foot soldiers on the ground. They're they're quite different from the political echelon. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, there were unfortunately treacherous um, Palestinian factions in Syria, for example, in Yarmouk, um, that that not only betrayed the Syrian government, it betrayed Palestine too, right? By by fighting against Syria, you're essentially fighting against Palestine. Um, but and it's an interesting thing too because like the situation in Yarmouk has been so manipulated by the United Nations and by Al Jazeera and Middle East Eye and all these you know corrupt media outlets, they don't they don't address the the, the greater context like why is there a siege on Yarmouk? Why have people fled Yarmouk? Because the terrorists infiltrated and at some point were abetted and aided by these Palestinian factions. Ava, can and you give not- us a can you give us a bit of background on Yarmouk? It's a district, and people always like to call it a refugee camp. And it, yes, it did house um, up to a million people. And in um, Syria, right? In Syria, sorry. Yeah, it's just a district just outside of Damascus. And so anyway, most people call it a refugee camp. Although when you go to Syria and you talk with people, they tell you actually Yarmouk was one of the most prosperous neighborhoods. And it wasn't exclusive to Palestinians. It also housed um poor Syrians that lived there, but it was actually an area that people came there for the markets, the shopping. Anyway, um, when this whole thing started up, at some point, the terrorist factions like FSA and Nusra um, entered Yarmouk and took over parts of the area. And, you know, an essential uh, strategy in fighting, I'm not a war expert, but I've read that, you know, siege is a common tactic in fighting war. And so, and the government strategy has been to, to, um, if, whenever possible, to evacuate the civilians, and I met civilians that were staying in shelters that were supported by the government, civilians that had come from Yarmouk, including Palestinians and Syrians, and then to lay siege on the areas in which the terrorists are um, are, are, be, are staying and mm-hmm. occupying. And that's, I mean, if we'd applied this to any other situation, say it was the U.S. Army in Iraq or wherever they're waging their bogus wars, you know, the, the, I'm sure public opinion would be totally different in approving of this strategy. But because it's the Syrian government, and in fact, um, the security within Yarmouk is actually um, done by Palestinian security, not by the, secur- by, by the Syrian government. They don't actually enter Yarmouk. Mm-hmm. So, um, again, these media outlets have been saying 18,000 starving Palestinians in Yarmouk since, what, October 2013. Well, two years on and many evacuations later and sadly deaths later, it's not 18,000. They still keep piping this number because it, along with the whole barrel bombs, um, you know, talking points and Assad's army talking points, these are all um, talking points just um, to engineer public opinion, to keep people thinking that President Assad is this vile monster that must be toppled. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, what's actually happening to Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank is ignored or covered over in the media, but the but it, at, the, at the same time it presents a great opportunity to demonize Assad by saying that he's besieging this Palestinian refugee camp, essentially, right? 
Precisely. Yeah. And, you know, I I uh, was able to visit the outskirts of Yarmouk, um, not able to enter because at the point where you would enter, the Palestinian security said, we can't let you enter for your own safety because there are snipers. So we did get a look. And, yes, it has been devastated. That's a, that's a you know, product of war. Um, but, again, the context is why is there fighting there? And, you know, if the government were truly flat-out bombing, it, the whole area, they could raise the whole area, but they're not. They're waging a strategic war wherein they try to eliminate terrorist groups and not bomb out whole areas. So, um, but I was going to say also at the, at the time I had to, the chance to meet with Palestinian representatives of Yarmouk, and they, they said the same thing, you know, this is what's happening. We want the Syrian government to enforce siege. And, you know, in, in, in other areas, um, say, for example, Duma, again, an, an area where or Zabadani, um, where terrorists had occupied, the government is, has not full-out bombed the whole area. They're trying to get areas, they're trying to bomb areas, target areas where the terrorists are. And they have laid siege because, again, what happens from Duma or formerly from Jobar, what happens? These terrorists manufacture their homemade bombs, their cooking gas canister bombs, they stuff them with bits of glass and metal and shrapnel. They fire them on civilian areas in the outskirts of Damascus, in Damascus, you know, and this is, they say, well, if you're living in Damascus, then we're going to, like, this is their revolution. We're going to fire these dirty bombs on you. And I visited a couple of hospitals and saw, you know, many injured children, amputated limbs, you know, missing eyes, disgusting stuff, and many more have been killed. And this is from these, these terrorist cooking gas canisters that, Ken Roth of Human Rights Watch will never talk about mm. or, you know, Ban Ki-moon would never address. So it is very much a propaganda war and Palestinians sadly are being used. And sadly, this is um, an issue that many of my colleagues have found. This has been, Syria has been very divisive because those of us who, you know, advocate for Palestinian sovereignty and self-determination, the right to resist, also advocate for Syrian sovereignty. But many mm. who, you know, maybe... Um, in a well-being manner, support Palestine. When it comes to Syria, they're either totally duped and, and believe, you know, Human Rights Watch and all those other agents of um, the State Department, or they're, uh, for whatever reason, they're they're supporting this this false narrative of revolution. Mm -hmm. Indeed, actually, I'm glad you brought that up, Ava. I, I came across this early on, back in 2011. I couldn't believe it. I was astonished when a couple of... Um, fairly high-profile Irish activists within the Palestinian Solidarity Movement were uh, castigating me for basically defending Assad and saying, look, people, they're doing in Libya again. They're pulling out this card where, oh, he bombs his own people, therefore we need to go in and sort out his country. And But nothing will get through to them whatsoever. And it's, uh, it's a problem running right through um, support for Palestinians. And everything is, is kept into a certain narrative or twisted here and there, and it keeps people from seeing the overall bigger picture, especially especially that you cannot separate the issue of Palestine from all the other issues in, in the surrounding countries. Palestinians or Arabs, Arabs in general in the whole event, are used and abused and have been for decades. And here they are blaming Assad for killing his own people, in quotes, and it's one of the few countries that has actually housed and sheltered Palestinians mm -hmm. and defended their interests for decades. Just to pass the ball back to you, can you give us an idea of the numbers of Palestinian descendants or currently moving to Syria from Palestine? 
Uh, gosh, I don't actually have those numbers offhand. However, I can recommend, um, I'm just pulling it up, Sharmeen Narwani wrote a brilliant article about, uh, it was titled, Who Dragged the Palestinians into the Syrian Conflict? And I believe in that one, I, if I find it, I'll, I'll cite her. Um, I believe in that one she might talk about the numbers of Palestinians, and she certainly does, um, She in the article she discusses the different camps she's visited and Palestinians she's spoken with. So it's a fascinating article, again, talking about serious historic um, support for Palestinians, and that, okay, so there have been some treacherous Palestinian factions, but there's also many fighting alongside the Syrian army um, in support of the Syrian army and against terrorism. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I was going to say something. You made me think of one thing, and what was it? Hmm. Well, I think actually what it was was that, yes, if you contrast Palestinians' existence in, say, Jordan or, or Lebanon, um, it's a tell there. They, they live in awful conditions. Whereas in Syria, they were treated almost like citizens, except that they couldn't vote. You know, they got the same free health care, the same free education, and they were treated with respect not looked down upon, as happens in so many surrounding Arab countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you spend any time in Israel? Um, I don't call it Israel. And right, <laughs> but you know, I, as it is I, that I, place, what do you call it? Well, again, I have to be a little bit careful because of my solidarity work. Um, I don't want to, you know, uh, basically I was only in the occupied West Bank in solidarity with Palestinians, okay. not not to see so-called Israel um and certainly not to <laughs> do any of the yeah. partying or whatever. But um, the only way you can get into the West Bank, unfortunately, is through the criminal Zionist regime. Right. So I did have to go to Tel Aviv to get a visa at one point, and mm-hmm. that was, and I was thrown into a prison um, before being banned. So that was kind of the extent of my visit to so-called Israel. Um, the reason I asked that question was I was going as a follow-up question, really, to that, which was, um, have you met any? Uh, Jewish Israelis while in your time there have you had any encounters with them and obviously you've met a lot of Palestinians and what was your if 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 you have met both peoples have you um uh, what's your impression of of them and what's the you know what differences there are between them um i can I can say that uh certainly actually Amira Haas who's a uh, pretty good or excellent i should say um Jewish Israeli journalist that lives in Ramallah last time I checked. Mm-hmm. She was on the boat with me when we sailed, the free Gaza boat when we sailed to from Cyprus to Gaza. Um, so I met her. But I, I did go to protest at Belain um, 12 or 15 times, I don't remember. Mm-hmm. And there were um, Israeli activists that would come to those protests. And I think some of them truly are um, solid activists, like some from members of Anarch- Anarch- Anarchist Against the Wall, um, mm-hmm. There's another group of activists that do a lot of photography to bring the, the situation of Palestine to the eyes of average Israelis who are largely blinded on it. Um, but so I, you know, I, I did meet some of those activists. But I would say, from documentaries I've seen and from that brief excursion to get a visa, in terms of the the, the differences, they're they're vast. Like I was remembering um, the other day, I went to this one so-called peace meeting, and it was just a bunch of hippies sitting around playing guitar, <laughs> so I got sick mm-hmm. and I walked away. As it happened, it was slightly outside the occupied West Bank um, line, so I was walking down a road in so-called Israel, um, To I walked just aimlessly and ended up at this gas station, and, and I'm getting to a point here, 
there were small strips of grass on either side of the road in the sidewalk. And there were something like 20 sprinklers irrigating this grass. Mm-hmm. I had just left Hebron, where the Palestinians in Hebron had no water because the Israeli authorities said, okay, you've used your water for this quarter. It's turned off. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the obscene situation where Israelis are filling swimming pools and irrigating their lawns, and Palestinians literally cannot wash their own bodies or clothes or flush a toilet. That's just one sense of the imbalance. Also, you know, the Palestinians, they don't have... Um, in, in most areas, not not all areas. I don't want to paint this picture of everywhere being a refugee camp, but in areas like Palkilia, you know, the the roads are are rutted and people live in pretty miserable conditions. In other areas like Nablus, you know, they they have been able. It, in some areas, they you know they have infrastructure, and they. I guess what I want to emphasize is that they're they, they're cultured and they're mm-hmm. you know, educated people. But yeah, yeah, it's certainly in terms of like what they're allowed to have and build and do, it's, it's, it, there's no um, equivalence. The Israelis have set it up in such, and they keep destroying more and more Palestinian homes, you know. Mm-hmm. Is, is life in, uh, is that the same picture you just presented there of uh, the West Bank, is it true of uh, Gaza? Um, I'd say that in Gaza City, for example, there's a lot more developed infrastructure mm-hmm. parts, but it's still simple in comparison. Like you don't, mm-hmm. the, the park's, the fountains don't run for the most part. Um, but Israel bombs Gaza every year or two, mm-hmm. and every time they do that, they intentionally strike bridges and other key infrastructure, water and sewage lines. Mm-hmm. So at this point, after the you know two months of salt last year, I, I don't actually know how good or bad it is now. I, I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. there's been very little rebuilding, and Palestinian families tend to be large. So you know, when I first went to Gaza, it was... 1.6 or 7 million, and now it's around 2 million people. Mm-hmm. And and on top... ...a little bit more developed in my experience, but um, mm-hmm. again, only for, for want of building supplies. Did you have any run-ins with the Israeli colonists? Settlers, yes. as they're so-called? Can you give us um, uh, some examples, or what did you experience with them? Well, I spent... Um, off and on, like going back and forth, but months um, sleeping in the tents of Palestinians who'd been displaced from their their former homes, you know, these beautiful old Arab stone homes, right? And also these really fascinating cave homes that they lived in for generations. So in the 80s, they'd been kicked out by the so-called Israeli government, which called it um, a closed military zone, and then later turned it into a so-called archaeological park, claiming that these were Jewish homes. So anyway, the Palestinian people that had been kicked out, they lived, in the, and they still live, in these ramshackle tents. And they are regularly abused by the Israeli army and also by these colonists who, as you know, normal throughout occupied Palestine, they live on hilltops in the best prime areas. They, they throw their, their sewage down on Palestinians, and they regularly attack them. So in the case of Susia and surrounding areas, which, again, south of Hebron, they would routinely come from the colony of Susia, and they would kill the Palestinians' sheep and goats, or they'd steal them, they'd poison their water wells, and they'd steal their land and, you know, knock down their olive trees and abuse the Palestinians. So what I observed um, when I was there in 2007, I, I saw how they take over land. Like, the Palestinians had a plot of land, they had the deeds for it, they had to go through the Israeli legal system, which is not in their favor, obviously. The Israeli colonists... Um, roped off the land, fenced off the land, planted grapes on it. And so we were documenting this, and at various times they came up and threatened to beat us. There's a, a video somewhere on, online where one of these um, horrible, vile 
creatures comes up to me and calls me a Nazi and starts threatening to beat me. <laughs> he didn't beat me, but he did later beat a colleague of mine pretty badly. Um, and this is just our mentality. They Because they are enabled by the army. I mean, you see what's happening in the West Bank now. Mm-hmm. These, these, these vile, murderous people are killing Palestinians on an almost daily basis, mm-hmm. running them over. Or mm-hmm. you, you remember last year they burnt that boy, Mohammed Khadr, mm-hmm. I think, alive. I mean, and they are never punished. So, yeah, I did see it, and I saw them in, 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 in Hebron as well. Um, they walk around with, you know, um, machine guns slung across their, their shoulders. They abuse Palestinians. A, a, a man that I had met, Hashem, um, he lived in uh, Tel Ramada. He recently passed away. As I recall from the article, he he was having a heart condition and couldn't get to an ambulance. This happens so frequently because of the checkpoints. And so he died. But when I was there, he told me how the colonists above him would routinely throw feces, urine, um, mm. you know, all sorts of crap at, at them. And they even threw a big boulder and some sort of machine at him. Mm. And so they were routinely abused and, again, totally enabled by the occupying army. Yeah, I mean, the pictures, the stuff that's gone on over the past um, <clears throat> few weeks that kind of almost seemed to coincide with uh, Russia's kind of camp- beginning of Russia's campaign of airstrikes in Syria um, it's just been has laid bare yet again uh, the nature of the, the Israelis and their attitude towards Palestinians. It's so close uh, to be indistinguishable, as to be indistinguishable with uh, with the way the portrayal of the way the Nazis treated the Jews. Yeah, and and more than one um, Holocaust survivor or descendant of Holocaust survivors has spoken out very critically against Israel and said precisely that. They've said, you know, what you're doing to Palestinians is worse than what was done to Jews. Mm -hmm. Um, And, of course, Israel has been involved in aiding and abetting terrorists into Syria as well as attacking Mm -hmm. Syria on numerous occasions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even the UN has documented this, and, of course, because we know the UN is is just an institution to institute whatever imperialist designs <laughs> are mm. wanted, but they've documented it. And the Syrian ambassador told me he said, you know, this has come up. It's 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 been spoken about in the UN um, Security Council, and you know, it, or it's been presented, and nothing is done mm-hmm. about the fact that Israel is training terrorists, about the fact that the UN has documented Israel meeting with the militants mm-hmm. and funneling them back and forth across the border. Yeah, well, I mean, you, I mean, that's obviously at the behest of the, the kind of global empire we live under now, which is dominated by the U.S. And uh, it seems that um, Israel today is just, uh, or, or the the Zionist occupiers, occupiers are just fulfilling the role that was set for them effectively back in, uh, you know, was negotiated for them back in the 20s and 30s and set established for them in, uh, with the creation of the state of Israel in 1948. I mean. Israel has obviously been used for all those years as a policeman or vanguard of the of the Americans, effectively in the Middle East to control the Middle East and keep the those rest of the Arabs uh, down because of uh, because they happen to unfortunately be living on piles and piles of oil resources and gas resources. So I mean, it's uh, on one level that that's a good explanation of what's what's going on in the Middle East in general, has been going on for so many years, and specifically in terms of Palestine and, and Israel, um, it's all about the uh, kind of control of these resources. Do you agree? Uh, definitely resources are a key element of this. Um, prior to, I mean, uh, there have been so many people that have spoken about this. Um, uh, 
Dr. Bhutena Shaban uh, addressed our delegation in February, and she was talking about how, and 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 sorry, actually it was Syria's Grand Mufti said how if Syria had agreed, if if the president had agreed to sell France its resources back whenever France demanded, none mm-hmm. of this would have happened. Um, and yeah, and, and we know that there was some sort of agreement about pipelines to to go through Syria, but it was not via the House of Saud or mm-hmm. any of the imperialist stooges. It was, you know, the the access of resistance. Um, so uh, yeah, definitely resources. I mean, you look at um, last time I checked, which is many months ago, over 1,500 factories in Syria had been dismantled and taken to um, Turkey by the terrorists. And, you know, you have Daesh or ISIS, as the media likes to call them, and mm-hmm. other similar terrorist groups controlling um, oil areas and, and selling oil. I don't even know if they're selling They might even be selling it to so-called Israel. I can't remember that part. But, yeah, um, mm-hmm. definitely resources are a key factor. So, yeah, I mean, there's that geopolitical uh, strategy that, that underpins the whole thing, but at the same time, you have this uh, ideology. I mean, to, to enforce that uh, geopolitical strategy, they've created this, uh, you know, nationalistic, uh, religious, Jewish ideology and implanted it, implanted it on Palestinian land and, you know, m- many years ago. And there, I mean, that's obviously a, a major part of the, of, of the Jewish or Zionist argument, at least with the people on the ground uh, in occupied Palestine. Um, so in that respect, I mean, Israel has eaten up, the Zionist government has eaten up uh, large parts or a majority of, of, of Palestinian land and is continuing to do so by creating facts on the ground in terms of settlements on Palestinian land and saying, well, more or less, this is Israel now, even though it's the West Bank. Um, do you see wh- where do you see that going? Uh, do you think there's an end game from the Zionist point of view? Um, well, it's, it's in my understanding, it's a not a pretty end game in that their original plan was not just to occupy the land that they have now and continue to occupy, but they want all of Palestine and beyond. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, you have in in Gaza, you have. Um, and in terms of resources, sorry, I missed uh, the question. Also, there are, of course, resources in the sea, mm-hmm. um, in Palestinian waters that Israel wants, and also in the Golan Heights, apparently, that Israel wants. Mm-hmm. But yeah, in, in Gaza, you have like uh, the so-called buffer zone that the Israeli regime unilaterally implemented on the Gaza side, saying it was 300 meters, but in our experience, they shoot um, to kill, you know, up to two kilometers. So Gaza, at its widest point, is about 12 kilometers um, and it's more narrow points, about five kilometers. So just with that example alone, the buffer zone, they're already eating up, um, I believe it was um, one-third or two-thirds of agricultural land because it tends to be in the buffer zone. Mm-hmm. Um, and then every time they, they shijai a place, you know, last uh, summer they, they decimated the eastern uh, Gaza neighborhood of Shijai. Um Every time they, they destroy these areas and then people can't rebuild, I, I think that's another way of creating facts on the ground. Like, mm-hmm. But the thing is, Palestinians don't have anywhere to go, so I don't really right. understand what the I plan mean, is. Yeah, there is, and I cannot verify this, but there was one theory that they wanted um, to set up um, somewhere in the Sinai and send the Palestinians there. Mm-hmm. That's I'm I'm just surmising here. It's something I heard or read, but I don't know that that is a plan. But it, in one sense, it, c- it could make sense. Um, but the Sinai is had, desert, right? It is largely desert. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure what type of water resources are there. Um, right. yeah, yeah, I mean, 
uh, well, we used the, everybody used the, the Nazi analogy, which is a very apt one, I think. Uh, but, I mean, obviously that didn't... But that came to a head in the so-called final solution, right. which is kind of understandably on everyone's lips when it comes to second-guessing what on earth the Israeli regime thinks it's doing mm-hmm. or getting towards. Um, I'm sure, Ava, you'll agree with me that this bizarre equilibrium, if we can call it that, there's a kind of a stability to it where it's just the status quo, but every two years, like you said, Israel does a turkey shoot, particularly on Gaza. It can't go on forever, can it? Uh, it can't, and I mean, people are uprising now, although the fight is not fair by any means, and um, I fear that Israel is going to violently quash um, the, the rightful resistance of Palestinians, but I also hope that um, the you know the resistance alliance um, are going to get are, are going to have Palestinians back. It's, it's so hard to say though because I mean I, I do believe that um, Iran and Hezbollah and absolutely Syria are with Palestine and will support Palestine. However, with all the things that are happening right now, um, you know Syria is fighting to survive itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I really I can't predict how how this is going to come to a head. Um, certainly, nobody is going to rein Israel in. We've seen that. Um, it's it's a, it's scary times right now, to be honest. Um, again, I'm fully supporting resistance. I just I hope that they have the means to resist one of the strongest militaries in the world. Yeah, um, Joe's mentioned the fact that, and there is some. There is some uh, pattern to this when something happens on the international stage, particularly in the region. You tend to see the reaction of Israel in its abuse of Palestinians. Uh, Joe mentioned recently with Russia's intervention in Syria, mm. almost within 24 hours, Netanyahu basically said, oh, problem in Israel, there's a third intifada on the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and all these knifing started. What, what, what's going on there? I mean, Jews have been knifing other Jews, thinking they're Arabs. And yeah, well, I, I, I think. I mean, it seems like this. Again, with the caveat that I support Palestinians' right to, to resist, but I think it does seem like this is being, um, in, a, in one sense, engineered. Like, of course, Palestinians are rightfully angry um, at their oppression, but I mean, you have many instances in these so-called knifings where a Palestinian, even a young teenage Palestinian, is shot dead. And then later in the videos, um, in many cases, it seems like there was not a knife there before, there's a knife there now. How did that happen? And how did it happen? Well, because then they can say this Arab tried to kill a a Jew and tried to kill them with a knife, so we had to protect them. But when you watch these videos and look at the photographs, you can see in many, many cases that the person was clearly no threat. Um, the, like there was one case of a young woman that was surrounded by heavily armed soldiers. She had her hands up. Her, her she was no threat whatsoever, and they still proceeded to kill her. And then later, lay a knife beside her and say that she was trying to attack them. Um, so it seems like they are trying to foment um, anger amongst Palestinian population. And you know why? Because then it gives them the pretext to slaughter more Palestinians. I don't know if that's their sick game. I would not be surprised. Well, you mentioned earlier the uh, the incident from just a couple of days ago. Um, I believe it took place near Bethlehem, and it was the the IDF um, going through with their loudspeaker um, mm. through this this you know so-called refugee camp, and 
just to, to give a bit more of what they said, because I just watched the video before we came on the air today, and they said, well, you know, all the women, children, old people will kill them all, will gas them all if, you know, if, they, if you guys don't stop throwing stones. He's, and the guy on the speaker said, we are the occupying force. Yes. And so the reaction of some, of the, some Palestinian commentators was that this was very odd for them because the IDF usually refers to themselves as the IDF. Defense forces. Yeah. Defense forces. And this guy on this loudspeaker said we are the occupying force. Well, at this point, it's got to be obvious yeah. to them as well, right? I mean, geez. But there, it, it seems like even the Israelis, just in this one incident, they're upping their rhetoric. And to me, that seems like um, it will ultimately... Um, well, ultimately, they'll shoot themselves in the foot by doing so, because even by fomenting partially this uh, this new resistance, this new level of resistance, and trying to create this chaos in order to uh, to bomb Gaza again, or, or who knows what, at the same time, they're being they're exposing themselves even more and even more obviously as what they what they truly are, which is this occupying force that has the rhetoric of Nazis. That, that, that they will threaten to kill this entire... And it wasn't just to kill all the, the people listening to this message. They said, we have captured one of your people. We've got him with us right now, and we will slaughter him. That was a direct quote. We will slaughter yes. him in front of you. And yep. I mean, if when these sorts of things start becoming more public, I think that the, that the public reaction will be even more against Israel's favor and more in favor of the Palestinians. So... Uh, you know, as for how long this is going to last and how long it's going to have to keep going on the way it's been going, I don't know. But um, yeah, I just saw that video today. I, I haven't seen it when it happened, and I, your tra- your transcript is right. Like he did specifically say, "We'll slaughter him, slaughter um, him in front of you," as for throwing stones. I mean, that's just mm-hmm. how ridiculous it is. But one thing I noted at the very end of the video. Um, when the jeep started to back up, there was a young Palestinian teen, and he's like, Dal, Dal, which in Arabic is like, come here. So he's like, he's, he's yeah. basically goading the soldiers, saying, yeah, you can't scare us. Like, And yep. really, like Palestinians have been put through hell over and over again, and what do they have to lose if they right. resist? Nothing. They have right. a lot to lose if they just sit and take it. Right. Uh, Eva, we have a, a call on the line here. Uh, Jonathan from... Tampa Bay. Hi, Jonathan. Can you hear us? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and, and be brave enough to say my full name. My full name is Stephen Hunt. And um, oh, Stephen I've Hunt. Been, okay. Yeah, and you know what? I just, I'm just tired of it. You know, I should. I should I'm going to speak out, put my name behind something. I'm not being threatened with, with being bombed today. I'm not okay. being threatened with uh, ISIL or the moderate uh, rebels. Okay, so uh, I should at least be brave enough to use my own full name, which is Stephen Hunt. Um. Mm-hmm. I've been yep. trying to find out. I've been enjoying the interview immensely, and um, I'm just trying to uh, point something out that I've encountered um, across the board is uh, is uh, just a lack of clarity on the part of uh, American so-called progressives and the American population in general about do or um, do the majority of people within Syria um, support the United States goals in efforts in Syria, or do they support the uh, Syrian government and Russia trying to uh, fight the the rebels? And this isn't. This needs to be brought home forcefully and clearly 
as to what the truth of the matter is when it pertains to that subject. Yeah. Uh, that's, well, I don't know, we'd have to ask the American people, but they never get to uh, express their opinion because they always get, get they're told what their opinion is. But, uh, Stephen, do you have... Uh, do you have any? What's your What's your take on Israel Palestine? Well, Israel Palestine. Um, I'm confused about that issue at the moment um, because I, I have been I've inculcated into the dominant kind of progressive left paradigm from Noam Chomsky and and so forth. But um, I know there's a lot more nuances to this issue than um, than they really come to the forefront. But I'm definitely for. Uh, I definitely see a, 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 a totally illegitimate and illegal um, theft of land and oppression of a peoples, and um, you know that's that's basic and fundamental, and that's on the surface, um, you know, in my interpretation of it. But how they're mm-hmm. being, how these factions, like what, what was said earlier about Hamas, I totally agree with the uh, the, the kind of. Uh, interpretation or comment or uh, positioning of your guest is that, okay, I'm not Palestinian, I'm not in that area, and um, so, therefore, whether or not uh, Hamas, given the options, whether or not Hamas is a, uh, is, is, a, is a bestowed leadership, elected leadership role, that's for the Palestinians to, um, that's their decision. And but then stepping back a little bit more abstractly, you can definitely see how um, it's definitely obvious how the the, uh, the PLO and Abbas have been used as kind of puppet for Israel, and mm. uh, but also you know Hamas was also developed out of um, you know covert operations as kind of a false political front too, and it's evolved into something different. It's not merely a puppet for Israel, but. There's people that are in these political, uh, the hierarchy, that get benefits just by dint of being in that position, and it makes it um, it makes it difficult. But I'm I'm just wondering, um, vis-a-vis vis-a-vis uh, the situation in Syria, what the um, you know what what are the politics on the ground as far as you know average Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza as far as how they see the situation, and I would just like to reiterate again, you know, as I'm talking to fellow Americans, um, you know, what what I see is a very, very hazy and confused um, um, ideas as to whether, uh, I've heard people say that Assad has terrorized so so many if they speak out that they really want the U.S. to help free them, Mm -hmm. that uh, they'll be killed, right? And I think it's just, I think it's pretty simple from what my investigations are, that just the vast majority of people within Syria support Russia and their efforts coming to the aid of the Syrian government. And as much as uh, as different factions within the country of Syria might not like the, um, Assad, um, they do back the government in their efforts to uh, quash the uh, the mercenary armies of uh, jihadists that are murdering mm-hmm. their way across the territories. So. You know, I would just, I would like to, I would like to hear some more, um, you know, insight from your guest, which has been very, very astute, and um, you know, I admire this person a lot, um, and um, I've been listening to another woman that's in Syria, a Syrian national, and um, she's close to the air base, and she was on an interview, she's been interviewed, and um, 
you know, very, very authentic person. And uh, my, my mm-hmm. thoughts are with the, uh, my thought and my heart are with the Palestinian people, with your guest, and with the people of Syria, because there's been a huge, massive uh, propaganda effort that other people that feign to uh, support human rights and Palestinian rights, you know, for decades on this issue of Syria, man, they're just like, they've jumped the freaking shark as far as uh, I can mm. see. So, anyway, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll hang up and I'll look forward to the rest of y'all's show. Bye-bye. All right, Stephen. Thanks. Thank you, Stephen. Ava, perhaps you can address what our caller said by referring yeah. to this article you wrote, um, fantastic article. We put it on SOTnet last month, The Myth of Moderate Terrorists Deconstructing NATO Narrative on Syria, specifically the part where you talk about some of the political changes, the constitutional changes that took place in Syria in recent years. That's funny because I just had the article up because, uh, not because of tooting my own horn, but because there are many links in it to, I think, authentic reports on the vast amount of support for the Syrian government. So I, I will address the reforms, but I just want to just cite a few of those uh, those um, shows of, demonst- uh, of support for the government. For example, March 2011, so this is just a month, or actually it was two weeks into what was dubbed the Arab Spring in Syria, fantasy revolution I called it, Um, over six million people marched in Syria in support of President Assad. They did it in June again with a 2.3 kilometer long flag. They did it in November. So this is keeping in mind that all this time, Al Jazeera, you know, the corporate media are saying the Syrian people are demonstrating against their government. Yes, there were people demonstrating, but we'll get to that. But there were vast numbers demonstrating in support of the government. And this continues um, to this day. Um, And then we have the elections last year, which I know were um, the corporate media again tried to portray it as not free and fair, but colleagues of mine, aside from the fact that Syrians themselves said they were free and fair and they wanted them and they were happy with the results, which was 88% of the people um, of the 15.8 million registered Syrians, 88% um, chose Bashar al-Assad as president. So, and just as a side note, at that time I was actually in Lebanon and I saw the vast turnout of Syrians walking for kilometers just to reach the embassy um, to cast their vote. And most of them I saw were wearing T-shirts with the Syrian flag and or um, uh, the image of Bashar al-Assad on them, and cars were decked out with these images. So there was vast support. People were singing and dancing. They did not have a gun pointed at their hand. They were not frightened and casting their votes because, I mean, maybe there were some, but what I saw were people who wanted to support their country and wanted uh, President Assad. So then we look at the fact that, um, now I'll cite my article because in it I was citing some very good researchers like Stephen Gowans who talked about the early reforms and reforms that were made since as early as, and even before, but as early as March 2011. So he noted um, the emergency law, which in fact was put into place because of Syria is officially at war with so-called Israel. The emergency law was cancelled. Um, the constitution was put to a referendum and was amended. Um, and then they set the fact that they were going to hold elections, which were held um, both parliamentary and presidential elections, but also really very interesting things about the Constitution. Um, so the Constitution included uh, security against sickness, disability, and old age, access to health care, free education at all levels, and it included a provision requiring that at minimum half the members of the People's Assembly of both support and the reforms. And then in terms of Russia's 
intervention in Syria, which Syria asked for, it requested Russia intervene, and did not request America and its so-called coalition to intervene and bomb in Syria. But anyway, that, you know, their, their, their illegal intervention in Syria aside, you look at in the past months, um, now I'm citing Russia today, but I've seen this in other Sputnik and other reports, that Russia has conducted about 1,400 sorties in Syria in the past month. They've eliminated more than 1,600 terrorist targets, um, including um, around 250 command posts, 50 militant training camps, um, you know, ammunition fuel depots, field bases. They've killed major terrorist leaders. So, I mean, this is all not pretty talk, but the fact is Russia is doing in Syria what the American coalition did not do. And in contrast, not only did the American coalition not do that, um, and they bombed areas perhaps um, where allies of the Syrian army were making progress, but the American um, jets and the American coalition have repeatedly dropped weapons and, and munitions to the, the terrorist rebels in Syria, accidentally, repeatedly. I mean, this defies credibility. So people in Syria, from all reports I've seen and from Syrian friends I've seen, um, they are very happy about the Russian intervention. They're very happy about the fact that Russia is taking out these terrorist training camps and enabling the Syrian army, who, again, most people I met love and support, and they have family members in the army. Um, The Syrian army is able to make advances thanks to the support from Russia. And then just on another note of of support um, for Syria, so as you mentioned, I was there two times. Um, my Arabic is moderate. It's colloquial. It's Gaza dialect. But I could understand, you know, for basic conversations, not talking, you know, precision military talk, but basic conversations, I could understand what they were saying. And I would ask very simple questions. And repeatedly the answer was, we want President Assad. We love President Assad. Um, in some instances, there were people who said, I don't like him, but he's what Syria needs. In other instances, they, people said, I did not like him, but now I do because I see that he's what Syria needs. So over and over again, people have said um, whether it's they, they see it as a strategic and good move to have um, President Assad in power or whether they full out love him, as many people do. And they, many people would tell me, Eva, you know, we would see him walk to work. Um, who does that? What presidents do that? We would see him in restaurants in the old city. Um, and he would talk with people, and he's, he and his wife are actually very much loved by most Syrians. So, um, the, you know, the issue of support, um, also, I, sorry, one, I'm kind of drifting here, but one other thing I want to mention was, in the corporate media narrative, Homs was dubbed the so-called capital of the so-called revolution. So having been there twice and visited areas where terrorist car bombings have gone off and targeted civilians, or areas where the terrorists were embedded until they, they reached that deal in April or May 2014 in which the terrorists were taken out of most of Hans. I was able to meet with people who lived under their presence and you know they told me about how they would steal their food uh, and, and worse things of course and how they did not support them. They did not want them there and they were very happy when the Syrian army came and resumed control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Ava, we, um, we're going to let you go uh, we don't want to keep you on too long. I know you uh, you didn't sign up for for, for a, too long of an interview. And as you know, we're gonna uh, have a chat with uh, Navid, who who you know. Yes, I think you'll enjoy that one. Yeah. <laughs> Can I? Uh, could I just plug something? Yeah, sure. Uh, I was, yeah, go ahead. I'm a I'm a co-founder and on the steering committee of the Syria Solidarity Movement. We're all volunteers, but anyway, 
you know, our, our stance is, um, we, we um, I'm paraphrasing, but anyway, we support sovereign Syria and Syrians' um, decision, ability to make decisions themselves, and we're absolutely against intervention unless Syria requests it, as in the case of Russia. But anyway, there's a conference coming up in December. The Arabs, uh, Arab Women's Progressive League is organizing this women's con- conference, sorry, and some of us will be attending, and I hope, hopefully I will be attending, and some of my colleagues, and also former um, Congresswoman Cynthia McKinney should be attending. Mm-hmm. But I just wanted to plug it and say that you could find this, um, you can find a note about it at our website, which is syriasolidaritymovement.org. Mm-hmm. And also, um, just to say, we are all volunteers, and if anybody supports the work we're doing, um, it could uh, donations would really help get get people like uh, activists and other people that are going to this conference and also one in Lebanon in support of Palestinians mm-hmm. in, uh, also in December. Where is the conference taking place? Um, the, the one in Syria should be in Damascus. We were talking okay. today. Could be in Latakia, but most likely in Damascus. Uh-huh. And there's a Palestine, um, Return to Palestine conference in Beirut, Lebanon. Okay. All right. Well, Eva, thanks a million for coming on. And I really, you know, you're... We want to commend you for all the kind of work you do. You're obviously a very brave uh, woman, uh, and I wish the world had more people like you in it to um, yeah. take a stand for mm-hmm. the underdog, basically. Oh, thank you. I, I'm happy to say I've met many, many people who are taking strong stands. <laughs> okay. All right. So people can check out. Uh, you have your own website. It's uh, in Gaza. In Gaza. WordPress. Com. That's right. And, um, okay, well, listen, thanks a million again for coming on. And uh, Thank you all very much. It was a pleasure talking with you. No Thank problem. you so much, Eva. Okay. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Eva Bartlett. Yes. Uh, superb, superb lady and a great example to us all. Let's just go straight to... Um, our next guest, which is Navid Nas, I think. Um, let me just see if I can get him on the line here. Um, Navid is... Hi, you there, Navid? Yes, I am. Hi, welcome to the show. Um, I'm Joe. We have Neil and Harrison here with me as well. Hi. Hi, Navid. Welcome. How you doing? Great to talk to you. Listen, um I'm just going to give a quick uh, intro for you now that it's, uh, you are an Iranian-American writer, political analyst, and host of the Bullet Points radio show on the Voices of the 99% Radio Network. You have covered U.S. and global conflicts, including those in Syria, Ukraine, Egypt, Yemen, Libya, for Lebanese TV and Iranian Press TV. Is that uh, accurate enough? Yes, perfect. perfect. Okay, well, now that uh, it's great to have you on, we, uh, we were just uh, talking to... Eva, as I think you know, um, and we covered mainly the, uh, I mean, I think she has most experience in, even though she's been to Syria several times, I think she has most experience with, uh, in Palestine and, and Gaza, I think that's kind of almost where her heart is. Um, but you, you've taken a, in your kind of research and writing, and um, you've taken a broader, maybe a broader look at the, at the entire Middle East, would that be true to say? I guess um, my personal sentiment is, um, by the way, I hope I'm, I'm sounding okay. Uh, you sound good. Okay, excellent. Um, my personal feeling is, and uh, I know um, friends of mine don't necessarily agree with me, me on this, but 
just my own experience and what I see is a lot of good people, a lot of good analysts, and um, uh, a lot of activists who have taken a, a very active interest in what's going on in Palestine and, and have covered that particular um, area from every angle and every nuance, and uh, it's out there. I mean, even um, most uh, nation magazine reading liberals have a pretty good understanding of, of what's going on in Palestine at, at this day and age. It's the other things that are going on that there's uh, a cloak of dissemblance and lies and either uh, wishful thinking propaganda or just uh, silence over it. And so my focus has been on everything else that's been going on in the region, not to the outright exclusion of what's going on in Palestine, but whereas Palestine was uh, one of the keys to my own political awakening, again, now I see so many people and so many uh, uh, websites and news outlets and uh, NGOs and you name it who have a really good analysis of what's going on in Palestine and put that out there, but little to no uh, coverage or analysis of what's going on in Libya, Egypt, Yemen, Lebanon, Iraq, you name it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's actually one of the points that Ava made, um, and which we've seen, that a lot of people talking about Palestine and who know what's going on in Palestine seem to take the official view of what's going on in Syria, which is just the propaganda line. Um, what has been, uh, what's your take on that? What have you seen? Um, well, and not just limited to Syria, but in, in relation to all these conflicts, um, do you see um, what's the line that these people um, are taking on this? Well, um, so before I say anything about that, I, I need to say this, which is there are a lot of uh, pro-Palestinian activists and Palestinians themselves who have an excellent analysis of what's going on in Syria, in Lebanon, in Iraq, and in Yemen. With regards to uh, Palestinian groups active on the ground in Palestine, the ones I can think of uh, are uh, Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, whose analysis of what's going on in the region has always been great. Um, and as well, uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, who have never wavered, never turned their back on the regional resistance axis, whatever you want to call it. Uh, they've always been on point in their analysis. Um, and there, again, there's individual Palestinians also that I, can, that I can point to and say the same thing about. I think um, from my experience, what I've seen, um, a lot of what's going on is um, propaganda and uh, deceit on the part of uh, the Brotherhood and its activist base in the region and abroad, particularly in the U.S. In the region, uh, I'm talking specifically with regards to uh, Egypt, Syria, um, Lebanon, and Palestine. And in Palestine, when we talk about the Brotherhood, we're, we're talking about Hamas, uh, unfortunately. Um, and again, I do need to preface this by saying that not all uh, Hamas activists and uh, fighters are on board with this, but there's no denying that a significant portion of uh, Hamas's political wing and even its military wing have thrown in their lot behind the so-called Arab Spring 
behind the uh, um, uh, Islamist groups fighting on the ground for the overthrow of the Syrian government. Mm -hmm. And they have even lent their tunnel-making expertise to these groups, both to Jabhat al-Nusra and to uh, Ahrar al-Sham. I was watching a video of Ahrar al-Sham fighters somewhere in Idlib province, and they had created this network of tunnels underneath Syrian Arab army positions. And in the video, they specifically thanked, quote-unquote, the brothers in Gaza uh, for helping them. Mm-hmm. And there's no other way to interpret that mm-hmm. other than Hamas. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, this, this attitude has infiltrated into the broader Palestinian solidarity community where um, there's a, a lot of anti-Syria, anti-Iran, anti-Assad uh, sentiment prevalent. Mm-hmm. And it's, 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 disturbing, but it's also sad on several levels, because what has happened is people who take this position have basically, again, talking about a a broader regional framework here, have thrown in their lot with the March 14 alliance in Lebanon, basically, because that's the analysis that they bring to the table. Um, That's what they put out there, whether it's Saad Hariri, um, whether it's um, oh I forget his name right now the the uh, head of the death squad uh, the, the famous death squad Le- uh, Lebanese forces um, not Frangia um, but I forget his name right now but mm-hmm. but uh, uh, one of the famous uh, 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 Maronite death squads in Lebanon also is fully on board with the Syrian regime change and basically the only Christians in the region who are on board with it are his followers um, and. These were the people actually who were directly responsible for what happened in Sabra and Shatila. And so mm-hmm. that's what I'm saying, that this is sad. The Palestinians who have thrown in their lot uh, behind this anti-Syria campaign have basically decided that they're on the same side of the barricade as the people who carried out the Sabra and Shatila massacres. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's... Uh, whether it's uh, for the sake of misguided... Uh, sectarian solidarity, whether it's for the sake of equally misguided um, anti-Iranian or anti-Russian sentiment, Mm. um, it's hard to tell because it's usually not stated explicitly in those ways. It's usually stated in other ways, Uh, you know, the usual dog whistle terms about dictators, freedom, democracy, etc., etc. So it's sad, it's disturbing and it's unfortunate and it's really separating the wheat from the the shaft with regards to the Palestinian solidarity movement. Mm. Now, uh, in the Western press, there's a lot made of the Sunni-Shia divide in in the Middle East and with different countries, etc. It's it's touted as the reason, for example, for the civil war uh, in in Syria right now, civil war, quote-unquote. you're Iranian, right? When did you? Uh, you were born in Iran, and did you move to the U.S.? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For, for yes, uh, yes. Born in Tehran, uh, Iran. Moved to the U.S. when I was about nine years old mm-hmm. um, with my folks. Um, yeah, so uh, I've lived in the U.S. for a long time. Yes. Okay, and what what is what is your understanding of of that? 
retarded Sony Shia divide that can be so easily or can so easily spark off into kind of like conflict in the region between like civil war, quote unquote? Um, it was something, uh, honestly, that I was completely unaware of for the vast majority of my life. It, it was not on my radar. I never got an inkling of it. Uh, from people that I talked to, from uh, um, from other Muslims, I, I um, the first time that I got I caught a whiff of it actually was uh, after the invasion of Iraq in 2003, and it, at the time I was uh, um, voraciously reading everything that I was getting my hands on about Iraq, and I was going to websites. Uh, I'll uh, if you all want to edit out the name of this particular website, I'm okay with that, but they're basically defunct at this point, so it, it doesn't matter. Uh, there was a website at the time that people that I trusted at the time referred me to, and in retrospect, um, I'm glad they did because otherwise I wouldn't have known about this, but the website was Uruknet. Uh, mm -hmm. Uruknet oh, yeah, I remember, I remember that one. Yeah. Right, right. Um, and it took me a while to realize that uh, despite the fact that it was masquerading as an alternative news site, it was yeah. basically not even uncritically, but positively putting out uh, viciously sectarian uh, propaganda. That's right. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Blame, sorry to interrupt you. I remember oh, go ahead, go ahead. they kept blaming Iran yes. for a lot of atrocities. Yes. At the height of the U.S. occupation, I was like, what are you doing? Yes, they were doing this deliberately. Uh, Uruknet, much like ISIS itself, started out uh, as an official uh, Iraqi Ba'athist uh, propaganda website, uh, officially. After the invasion, uh, Uruknet.info shifted its base of operations from Iraq to Italy, um, but it continued propagating a particular line. And the particular line, it was a gradual shift from uh, Ba'athist, Saddamist, whatever you want to call it, into full-blown Takfiri, Salafi, Jihadist. And um, it propagated the, uh, and disseminated the propaganda of, at the time it wasn't called the Islamic State, it was the Mujahideen Shura Council, but it put out in, in both in English and in Arabic their official communiques and reading these, these official communiques, again, uncritically and almost lovingly disseminated by this website, really shocked me because uh, I had never encountered anything like this before. Uh, these were people whose first and foremost targets and, and, and most vicious vitriol was directed, uh, you know, uh, I'll use the terminology that they used. Um, fire worshippers, uh, Safavids, um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, um, rejectionists. Uh, these are all, uh, for people who are not familiar with the region and with its history, may not be instantly familiar, but fire worshippers and Safavids are explicitly coded. There's no other word that I can use, racist language, uh, meaning that Iraqi Shiites are crypto-Persian. Uh, that's the fire worshippers mm -hmm. is a reference to Zoroastrianism. Uh -huh. uh, yeah, and and so this was being put out there. This website, Uruknet, was putting it out there. 
and uh, uh, the precursor of the Islamic State was putting it out there. And I, at the time, I thought, well, this is just some BS that's online. It has nothing to do with reality. But then I saw it. I saw their videos. I saw what they were doing. I saw the the, the suicide bombings at attacks directed in no way, shape, or form at occupation forces, but explicitly at places of worship, at markets, at squares, um, explicitly and purposefully directed at civilian populations for the uh, purpose of inflicting maximum harm and causing uh, the community as a whole to split and fracture along these mm -hmm. lines. Mm -hmm. And I'll say, yeah, and I'll, and, and uh, what was most unfortunate for me was seeing the response or lack thereof from the quote unquote official Muslim community, uh, uh, not not just uh, throughout the region, not just uh, among uh, the, the most respected clergy in Egypt or elsewhere, but in Europe, in the U.S., uh, silence, uh, passive acceptance, and even uh, in some of the uh, videoed uh, uh, khutbahs, the Friday uh, um, uh, sermons that I saw, even acceptance of this. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time I really caught a whiff of it and the first time it crossed uh, my path, and I was actually really quite shocked and horrified by it, and I didn't know what to make of it. Um, mm. Now, I'll just say this one thing, and, and then I'll, I'll, I'll let you ask me a follow-up question. Now, I've read um, things by Seymour Hirsch and others, um, specifically his column in 2006 or 2007 entitled The Redirection, talking about how the, stoking this kind of sectarianism was official U.S. policy mm -hmm. for the sake of attacking you know, the quote-unquote axis of resistance. And, and I accept that. Uh, I recognize that, but at the same time, it would, I, I don't think it would succeed. Was there not? Were there not already uh, a paved road um, for it? And the road has been paved by decades, decades of uh, Saudi largesse um, in all of these governments. Any masjid anywhere in the world whose imams have been uh, educated and trained in Saudi Arabia is propagating this kind of ideology and spreading it amongst its followers. Mm -hmm. So the ground is fertile. It's not um, a situation where these intelligence agencies have to go and knock people over the head over this. They just have to slightly tweak things, and there we are. Mm -hmm. And it's it's really sickening and it's unfortunate and I'm not quite sure what to do about it uh, uh, other than lend my support to the people who are fighting it on the ground in Iraq and in Syria and uh, elsewhere um, and countering the, the propaganda from from all of these fronts. Yeah, and to do what you're doing, which is to explain to people in the West, like us who uh, are exposed to this, this so-called Sunni-Shia divide, and it's given this presentation, it's, it's backdated. Oh, it's always been like so, back in the medieval times. Mm -hmm. Those Arabs, those Muslims, yeah, they're, they're like this all the time. But, but it's, it's BS, because this, this is something that's recently layered over 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A pan, yeah. pan, Arab, pan-regional uh, movement, nationalist pan Arab, movement. Yeah, pan-Arab nationalist. But it makes me, what you were saying there, uh, Navid, makes me think of, I don't know, do you know this guy, J- uh, Colonel James Seale? Um, he's a, he was a U.S., he is a U.S., or a former U.S. Uh, colonel. He now works kind of uh, freelance or something. But he was a U.S. veteran of uh, America's dirty wars in Central America, counterinsurgency, death squads, etc. And he was brought in by Rumsfeld into Iraq in 2003 or four to basically, and he basically organized uh, what he called Shia death squads. Part of um, they were among the Iraqis who basically fought on the Iranian side during the Iran-Iraq War. Um, I, I'm, I'm forgetting that I think it's the the, the Badr Brigades, mm-hmm. uh, and, and they changed their name to something else uh, when, once they re-entered Iraq after 2003. But it was the core nucleus uh, was the same, and it was these guys who were trained and let loose on the civilian population in the Sunni Triangle and in other regions, um, uh, perhaps even in Baghdad, I'm not sure, but definitely in, in the quote-unquote Sunni Triangle. Um, and uh, there was certainly, prior to 2005, a, a, a lot of animus uh, among the Shiite population in, in Iraq um, at their treatment at the hands of um, the, the, the government under Saddam since the late 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, and it manifested itself into uh, a certain degree of support for these groups. Um, but again, it, 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 it was not something that was in the region until after what happened in Iraq in 2003. This has to be hammered home by everyone. This was not like, a, oh, that's been going on for millions of years or since the dawn of time or, yeah, that's hogwash. It really is. It really is. Um, what happened, I'll tell you exactly what happened after um, the revolution in Iran in 1979, whose message was pan-Islamic and sought to cultivate similar revolutions across the region um, the kingdoms uh, on the other side of the Gulf saw this as a threat to themselves and amped up what they had already been doing in terms of uh, sending largesse to Pakistan, to uh, uh, other countries throughout the region, in terms of putting their particular message, their variety of Islam out there, and again, propagating it in uh, 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 not just in the Islamic world, but in immigrant communities in Europe and in North America and in Australia and New Zealand, mm-hmm. um, as a way specifically of combating what they saw as an Iranian threat to them and their power. Um, and at this point, again, uh, it's taken root. Unfortunately, it has taken root, and it has a life of its own now. And it's uh, um, it's unfortunate. And I'll I'll, mean, I'll I'll be honest with you, it's affected me, and and I never thought it would, but but it has. Uh, there, there's a lot of people. Um, uh, how can I put this? Um, uh, people from certain countries, I, I have to know chapter and verse about them in, in, in order for me to be okay with them, where they're from, what their family name is, mm-hmm. um, things like that. Uh, otherwise, it's difficult for me to trust them or, or uh, you know, even open up to them in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I wish that wasn't the case, oh, but it yes. is. 
Can you talk a little bit about Iran's relationship with Syria and Russia? Um, maybe a bit about the history, but what's going on right now? Well, the history of the relationship goes back uh, to the 80s, uh, to, to the wars in Lebanon, actually. Uh, maybe even uh, predating that, if you want to talk about it. But uh, Syria and Iran uh, have, um, since the 80s, uh, been basically on the same side throughout the region in terms of a lot of things, in terms of Iraq, certainly, in terms of uh, enmity towards uh, the Saddam Hussein government, in terms of um, uh, alliance with and, and uh, in uh, indispensable assistance to uh, resistance movements in Lebanon and in Palestine, again, including PFLP, including uh, Hamas, including uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, including Hezbollah, Amal, um, other groups. Um, so they ha they've had a working military and strategic and tactical alliance for decades now, and uh, they have been uh, really the only governments in the region that have been able to do this, that have been able to give more than just uh, the assistance to, of uh, pretty words to the Palestinian resistance cause or to the Lebanese resistance cause. Pretty words followed by backroom business deals with uh, the Zionist government a la Erdogan in Turkey or a la some of the Gulf governments, um, those kinds of things. So, um, yeah, that, that's how far back it goes. As far as uh, uh, alliance with Russia, again, um, Russia has, uh, since, since its uh, nadir in the 90s under um, uh, uh, the drunken sock puppet Yeltsin, uh, Russia has uh, really emerged as an independent force uh, on the world stage and specifically as part of the, the BRICS alliance and um, other regional alliances, and Iran is also uh, part of that, and so is Syria, mm -hmm. militarily and economically. And uh, their, their alliance has only hardened in recent years with everything that has gone on actually uh, in Syria and in Iraq, to the point now where in Iraq, in Baghdad, uh, there's a joint uh, tactical alliance now between Russia, Iraq, Iran, uh, Syria. They're all operating t uh, together in the, in, in the region for the sake of actually combating ISIS as opposed to theatrically combating mm -hmm. ISIS, which is what the, the quote-unquote, uh, uh, I don't know. Coalition, maybe, yeah. Yeah, the coalition has been doing, yeah. Um, so it, it's it, that, that's what it is. That's what it is, and, and they have similar interests throughout the region, not just in Syria, not just in Iraq, um, uh, but but also in the Caucasus and in Central Asia. It, it's not going to be to Iran's benefit or Russia's benefit, for example, if the uh, Islamic movement of Uzbekistan gains power in that country, mm -hmm. or or if the uh, um, what is it, the Turkestan Islamic Party gains power in Western China, mm -hmm. or if the Islamic Emirate of the Caucasus uh, you know, gains power in Chechnya and Dagestan. So uh, these are all strategic interests that perfectly coincide among all of these three nations. Mm -hmm. and, and Russia is doing its part not just as an ally of these countries, but also to advance its own geostrategic interests as it has the right to. Mm -hmm. uh, again, 
it's fighting these groups in Syria so that it doesn't have to fight them again uh, in its own backyard. Mm-hmm. So you think uh, Russia's launching of, of airstrikes at the beginning of just of last month or the end, end of September, mm-hmm. um, that it was, I mean, obviously when they began airstrikes, there had been a lot of planning and uh, kind of infrastructure set up in Syria prior to that probably took several months. Uh, what was uh, what do you think the the motivation was for Russia to decide at that point? Okay, enough's enough. Was it simply that ISIS was getting too strong, and and for the reasons you just gave, that they don't want the spilling over into into Russian territory or elsewhere? Well, exactly. Uh, if you remember at the time, um, we're talking about early to mid September, both ISIS and uh, the new Strung together alliance, Jaysh um, al-Fateh, uh, which is basically predominantly Jabhat al-Nusra and Ahrar al-Sham, have been making huge inroads. Jaysh al-Fateh have basically taken over Idlib province, it, sorry, Idlib province as a whole, and was knocking on the door of uh, Ladaria on the coast of Syria. And uh, ISIS was threatening to cut off the main major highway running north-south in Syria. Uh, which would have uh, dealt a severe blow to Damascus itself had that happened. Mm. Uh, Russia had already stated that it it was not going to allow the Assad government to fall. Mm. That wasn't going to happen. So when those things happened, which were were, um, a huge threat to the stability of Syria as a whole at this point, that's when Russia decided to more directly militarily intervene. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, it, it absolutely made the right move. Um, without that military intervention, uh, who knows what would have happened between uh, that point and now, where mm-hmm. we are right now. So these, but this, this group, uh, ISIS or ISIL, and the and the other affiliated uh, kind of terrorist groups who like to go around, go around chopping people's heads off and and, and committing atrocities and promoting them to the west. These, these are obviously uh, kind of like attack dogs on someone's leash. <clears throat> so I mean, and uh, I mean, you could cite, like you mentioned, Turkey, you know, the Saudis, Qatar, even Jordan, Israel is maybe involved. Um, so do you think Russia saw that as basically their spread through Iraq and into Syria, and, and then maybe overthrowing the Assad government as a means to an end, effectively, for the same leash holders to to Give Russia a problem? Well, there's no doubt about it. Um, uh, uh, Let me remind you of something um, that happened uh, last year before the Olympics in Russia. Um, uh, Prince Bandar bin Sultan of Saudi Arabia went to Moscow to meet with Putin, sat down with him at a table, and basically said, listen, if you let Syria go, we will basically put a leash on your problems in Chechnya and Dagestan. Um, actually, he said it in language much more direct than that. He said, we control those jihadis in Chechnya and Dagestan, hmm. and we will keep them under wraps for you. You will have no problems with them if you do this for us. And 
Putin told him where to go and where to take his ultimatum. But uh, that's what we're dealing with here. Mm. That is exactly what we're dealing with here. Uh, what happened in Chechnya, uh, and again, unfortunately, uh, we are talking about uh, 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 perhaps legitimate aspirations of a people for uh, autonomy and so forth, but one that was quickly overridden, quickly overridden in the uh, mid to uh, late 90s by something else, uh, uh, something much more uh, horrible and disgusting. Uh, if you've seen, for example, the uh, quote-unquote Dagestan beheading massacre and, and uh, similar things. The head, after a very short while, the head of the Chechen insurgency against Russia um, was a gentleman by the name of Khatab, who was a uh, quote unquote, uh, a Saudi slash Jordanian uh, quote unquote mujahid with experience in Afghanistan and in Tajikistan uh, before he went to Chechnya. The head of the uprising was not Chechen, not Chechen, was not a Chechen national. Um, uh, things like this need to be put out there. Um, and not just that, but the assistance, monetary assistance, propagandistic assistance, uh, uh, military assistance that went to the Chechen insurgency came from, with the exception, possible exception of Turkey, again, came from the exact same countries we're talking about now lined up against Syria, the U.S., Qatar, Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, the same exact players, the same exact countries, sometimes even the same exact people were the ones responsible for uh, the, the, the Chechen uprising, the uprising in Dagestan, and so forth. So um, we're, we're talking about, uh, um, you know, the purpose is political hegemony, economic hegemony, um, pipelines are always in the mix. Mm -hmm. uh, th th this is a, uh, it's sickening when you think about it. I mean, this is, uh, you know, uh, the title of Brzezinski's book, The Grand Chessboard. The, the whole world is a chessboard to these people. And entire countries are nothing but pawns. And it doesn't matter if hundreds of thousands get killed, if millions get killed, mm -hmm. if uh, one country after another is set afire. Um, they don't care. They're, they have bigger fish to fry. That's what we're dealing with here. We're not dealing necessarily um, with people, not necessarily. Uh, why, am I, why am I qualifying this? We're not dealing with people who are talking about uh, spreading freedom and democracy and this and that, like they have any belief in these concepts. They don't. They don't. I mean, what did um, Michael Ledeen himself, um, uh, you know, these people who are always going on about Tariya this and Tariya that are the foremost practitioners of dissemblance. You know, uh, they, they, they believe in, in um, the noble lie. Mm. You know, their, their heroes are, 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 are people like... Uh, um, his name actually uh, in, in, in Fiume, Gabriel D'Annunzio, Michael, Michael Ledin's hero is Gabriel D'Annunzio, people mm -hmm. like that. Um, you know, uh, they, they throw out names, Jefferson, Washington, they, they don't have any adherence to any of these things that normal Americans believe in, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, any of this stuff. All of that can, can, can go into the wastebasket for them. They believe in power. They believe in power and they believe in control. And 
everything else is expendable for them, including the American people, including America itself. Right. I mean, they've shown that. We're talking about, and under any normal circumstances, these people will be locked up in, in, in institutions. Mm-hmm. Padded jackets and padded walls. Mm-hmm. But they're wearing suits and commanding yeah, armies. exactly. Naveed, I want to talk about Saudi Arabia's intervention in Yemen. Um, what is going on there? Why did Saudi Arabia begin this earlier this year? And what are they hoping to get out of it? Um, I actually predicted this um, back in January or February when 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 the uh, the quote unquote Houthis, the, the uh, Ansar Allah movement, uh, took over the capital of Yemen, Sanaa. Uh, I said that within a couple of months there would be a military response from Saudi Arabia. I had no idea the extent of it. I had no idea that they were willing to lay waste to the entire country, uh, but but I should have guessed it. Um, wh- why are they doing it? Because again, in their mind, and and, and for the Saudis, this is genuine. They genuinely believe that uh, the the Houthi movement, the Ansar al-Dla movement, is an Iranian conspiracy, and uh, that they are fighting back against agents of Iran and Iranian influence in Yemen and uh, it, an Iranian takeover of Yemen. It's all about Iran for them, and it always has been since, the, since 1979. But this is uh, a, a, a direct threat on their border, and they weren't willing to stand for it. Um, and, you know, from their perspective, it makes total sense. And, uh, again, um, we're talking about... Um, I'm trying to uh, parse my words here because I, I, I do feel very strongly about it, and, and, and there's a chance that I could say something inappropriate <laughs> out here. Um, we're talking about we're talking about people um, who. Just go on Let let her rip. Okay. Yeah, we're we're talking we're talking about cowards um, who really whose own fighting prowess is questionable at the very least. When uh, when Iraq was threatening to, uh, not that it was ever actually going to invade Saudi Arabia, but after it went into Kuwait, uh, it was, it, you know, uh, there there was some legitimate fear in, in within the borders of Saudi Arabia that they would be next. And uh, for, I mean, they're one of the countries in the world that's, that um, spends the most on its military Hardware, and yet they're the least equipped to use it. Um, coward, cowardice is in their nature, and uh, most of the people, most of the Saudis who uh, are actual fighters, have already run off and joined ISIS and Jabhat al-Nusra and Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and all these other groups. So again, what you have left is a military, and indeed a culture, but a military culture specifically of pure nepotism. It's not that the cream rises. There's no. Um, uh, 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 it's it's not based on the cream rising to the top or uh, any merit or skill. Merit. There's no. It's not a meritocracy. That's the word I was looking for. It's not a meritocracy. It's a culture of nepotism, top to bottom. It's what is your last name? Uh, mm. What family do you come from? Who do you know? That's who they put in charge. You know. Um, 
I guess I guess I could you know talk about the rate of inbreeding among uh, the, the Saudis also. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the fact is that uh, yeah, I mean we're not talking about the brightest bulbs. We're talking, but we are talking about ruthless people, absolutely ruthless people who do not care uh, what, how many people they slaughter. Uh, to achieve their aims, their aims, and that's what's going on in Yemen. Their aim is if they can't facilitate the return to power of the former regime, then they will divide Yemen. They will divide Yemen among north-south lines. That is their aim. And right now in Aden and in some of the other provinces, basically uh, AQAP uh, has taken over. Um, and again, it wasn't going to be any other way. It's not like the Saudi army or the Emirati army was going to, you know, heroically march into Aden and take that. I mean, they're just not capable of that. And any actual fight on the ground with the Ansarullah, with the Houthi forces, they've come up uh, on the short end of the stick. Um, they're not fighters. They're cowards. That's why they, they do what they do. They bomb all of these uh, civilian positions in Sana'a and elsewhere from the air. Uh, their fighters are Al-Qaeda. That, th- those are their fighters. Their fighters are ISIS, Jabhat al-Nusra. Those are, are their fighters, and that's who they're employing now uh, in Yemen. Um, and to, to some extent, it's worked. You know, again, uh, these are the, the most vicious dogs in their kennel, and they've turned them loose, and they've achieved some military gains in the south of the country as a result. But, um, you know, they're not going to obviously regain control of the whole country. So, again, the best they can hope for is some sort of north-south division of Yemen. It may or may not happen. I don't know. Um, I hope it doesn't, certainly. But, uh, you know, uh, the Saudi... Uh, the Saudi story can't end well. I mean, we're talking about the, the whole country was... Uh, the foundation of it was uh, this pure fortune of uh, laying on top of this giant reserve of oil, mm-hmm. and that's going to run out in a few short decades. They're not going to have anyone left at all to operate their um, their weapons. They're not going to be able to hire all the mercenaries that they currently do. Um, you know, who knows what's going to happen, but it's just not going to end well for them. I, I mean, I don't, I don't see... But, but they're not thinking long-term. They're not thinking, thinking short-term, and, and they're thinking... Uh, whatever they're thinking, their their thoughts are from a place of hubris and ignorance, and and you know it, it's it's not going to end well for them in Yemen. It's not going to end well for them in 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 the south of their own country. It's not going to end well for them in the east of their own country. It's certainly not going to end well for them in in Iraq or Syria or Lebanon or other places uh, where they've tried to extend their influence. Uh, Egypt, Libya. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. The, the the Saudi story is is not going to have a happy ending. Yeah, yeah. exactly. They're a bunch of inbred psychopaths. So I mean, <laughs> there, Joe said it. What, what, yeah. What <laughs> right do they have? You know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's it smacks of desperation because I mean it still amazes me every time I think of it. Although it shouldn't that you know uh, the U.S. and its allies have got so desperate that the U.S. itself is willing to go ahead and more or less have like CNN and different U.S. Uh, media outlets talk around the the idea, but more or less say it, that the U.S. government is funding, training, and arming Al-Qaeda, the guys who attacked us on 9-11, quote-unquote. 
But, but, I mean, to get to that point where you're willing to risk that, I mean, you've got to put a lot of stock in your ability to con people and hope that they don't remember. Then uh, my question is, what are the American people thinking, you know? Uh, I mean, are they awake even? Like, I mean, it's pretty much on the news that the U.S. government is supporting Al-Qaeda, who, t- who attacked us in 9-11. Uh, does nobody have a problem with that? Uh, well, we're doing it to get rid of the evil Assad, of course. So, well, yeah, yeah. But, uh, okay, I mean, I, I wish it was the case that people paid attention. I wish it was the yeah. case that, that people remembered. Uh, I mean, Gore Vidal had this great phrase, which was the United States of amnesia. Yeah. Um, but it's it's absolutely true. People don't remember things from year to year, even month to month. I mean... It's incredibly frustrating, but you have to do it because people just don't remember. Mm-hmm. I mean, Libya happened. It happened not that long ago, and people have already forgotten about it. I've yeah. already like almost totally forgotten about it, including the people who were cheerleading it, including the people who were propagandizing on behalf of the quote-unquote revolution and the quote-unquote revolutionaries. They've already put it in the rearview mirror. Uh, so if they've done that, what 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 hope is there for the for the American people? Again, everything it's a holistic thing. So we'd like to think that you know we can say, well, yeah, but look at Libya, look at Iraq, look at uh, people have already forgotten about all of that. that. That's that's what the entertainment industry is for. Right. Uh, that's what all the stupid reality shows are for. That that's what. Um, Mm-hmm. You know that that that's what all this. Um, uh, what was the term in um, 1984 that I'm struggling to remember? Um, uh, double think. Uh, double think. It was that they had a whole um, the department. They had a whole department for it. Mindless entertainment. Um, yeah. uh, uh, I've forgotten it all, all, already, yeah, but yeah. but. I mean that's what all this stuff is for. Uh all the all the uh American Idol, all mm-hmm. the you know, real housewives of mm-hmm. fill in the blank. That, that, that's that's what this is for, to consume you know, and, and it's hard for it's hard for me to sit back and judge also because I, I know a lot of ordinary people. I talk to them and it's like, you know, they only have so many free hours in the day. Mm-hmm. I mean, part of what's going on is People are struggling. They're working longer and longer hours, sometimes two jobs, just to have the same um, level of comfort that they had two decades ago. You know, two decades ago, maybe, you know, you could have a decent life if you just worked an eight-hour gig, you know, five days a week. Now it's more and more difficult to do that, so people are putting in 12 hours at work, working two jobs, working on the weekends, and they got maybe one hour, two hours free a day. And it's difficult for them to like keep up to date with things or to dig into things, and and so so it's um, and it's so it's difficult for me to be like, well, why don't you know this stuff? You know, I I got they'll tell me I got kids, man, I got jobs, mm-hmm. yeah. You know what? What do you want from me? You know, and and it's a good point. I mean, you know, everything. It's a holistic thing. 
whether it's we're talking about the, the the pablum that's shoved down their throat, whether we're talking about the fact that they just don't have hours in the day to do what I do, you know, or uh, you know, it, it, it's a difficult thing that we're fighting because it's it's an entire system that's covered all the bases, you know. Yeah. Right. It's a fight that's worth fighting, obviously, because uh, the other alternative is throwing in the towel, which I'm not willing to do. But, uh, you know, we have to recognize the reality of what it is that we're up against. Right. Exactly. Uh, now that we have uh, a, caller, a caller on the line here, it's Miguel from Illinois. Sure. Hi, Miguel. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Hi, welcome to the show. What's uh, You got a comment or a question or... Uh, yeah, I was wondering, like, hey, you know, like, yeah, I understand and how, like, they're having a lot of conflicts and how it's likely to end up. But, like, do you ever think that if, like, maybe this is all meant to be? Uh, can you clarify that, man? Is he still there? Yeah, there we go. Miguel, do you want to yeah, know if yeah. we ever think it's all meant to be? Yeah, it's all yeah. meant to be, but what what's our role in it then? What should we do about it? Just sit we back and do nothing? Any further conflicts from this guy? Well, I, I didn't hear that. I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. I want like, don't you believe like if if this, this is what's happening, then it should happen, and let's hope that we don't get any further conflicts in the future once this all calms down. Yeah. But, well, what do you think now? Um, okay, well, there, there's a um, okay, yeah, there's a, a strain of thought that certainly uh, believes that. Um, hang on one second. Yeah, there's a strain of thought that believes that. Uh, I, I certainly don't believe that or accept that. Um, where, there's a phrase in Arabic um, also, maktub um, uh, or something like that, which basically means... Uh, you know, it's written. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, sure. Uh, yeah, there, there, there's. Uh, if something is happening, you can say that it's meant to be. But uh, there, that can easily uh, take you down a road that uh, robs everyone of their individual agency, mm-hmm. um, and basically. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I agree. Tells, it's tells just... people that that they have no control over either what's going on in the world or their own destiny. And I, and I, I can't accept that. Um, there's, uh, there's, yeah, we, we know you too much at this that, point. That doesn't mean it's not meant yeah. to be. Right. Uh, I think, I think it's not that it's, it's okay. It's a bit philosophical, Miguel, but it's, yeah, everything that happens is kind of meant to be because, uh, you know, it's what happened and, and you can say that's what was meant to be. But uh, I think, we're not saying like that you should go out and change things, you know, necessarily. I mean, we can't change, for example, what the U.S. or what any other country is doing in the world because they have a lot of power and stuff. But we should be looking at it, and if we don't like it, if we think it's immoral, we should be talking about it and saying it's immoral, not just sitting back and going, eh, whatever. And maybe yeah, that happens, you that's know. That's meant to be, too, is for, for the people that can see that to play that role. Right. And to, to say something about it, because maybe by saying something about it, something else will happen, and that'll be meant to be, too. Yeah. Yeah. You never know, you know? Listen, I I, I believe things are meant to be also, um, and I don't believe that uh, what's going on right now is uh, uh, the be-all, end-all. 
mm-hmm. or the end of history or any of those things. Um, so um, we all have a role to play, and uh, I'm confident. Uh, I have belief as well, and I'm confident in how things will turn out. It may not turn out that way uh, today or tomorrow, but it will. Um, so, yeah, it, it's 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 not just a matter of laying back and, and just accepting things. Is that what you do, uh, Miguel? Do you just, like, say whatever it's all meant to be and not really take any active role or even interest in stuff? Uh no, I honestly think that this – I don't believe that this should be what happens, but whatever it's meant to be is what the – what the U.S. does in this is – well, obviously, they started doing this for a reason. It's a war on terrorists, terrorism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just, did you just hang up, Miguel? <laughs> well, I, I, I'd, like, I'd like to suggest something. Hang on, Miguel just hung up. Uh, I just want to make it clear for everybody that uh, I think his point was that, you know, the U.S. is doing this for a reason. It's a war on terrorism, and then he hung up. So um, well, that's, I, that's his. <laughs> I want to suggest something, and then I'll pass it to you, Naveed. Yes. There are different levels of meant to beness. Sure, in the grand scheme of things, everything is maybe unfolding according to some divine plan, if one is so inclined to believe in higher powers. Right. However, at the level of that last comment from the caller, mm-hmm. the war on terror, mm-hmm. the American global hegemony project, what Putin just did intervening in Syria, Syria was not in the script. Absolutely not. That was not. not meant to be. Absolutely. And it threatens to change everything. Absolutely. That, that, that's exactly the point here. Again, I said this two months ago. Had this intervention not happened when it did, we would be talking about a completely different situation on the ground in, uh, um, in Syria, in Iraq. We'd be talking mm-hmm. about a completely different situation on the ground because, again, ISIS was this close to severing the major highway in Syria. Uh, whatever you want to call them, had seized Idlib province in its totality and were threatening to invade Ladapia on the coast, right next door to Idlib province. Um, and that would have been disastrous. Ladapia is one of the places where, um, Ladapia and Damascus, where the internal refugees have gone to, for example. So uh, the, the, the situation would have been completely different, a thousand times worse than what it is now. Um, yeah, just, so... so and then just no. take that into the future. Yeah. Look, at it, look at a year in the future and what that would mean. I mean, what, what the Russians have done is essentially put this huge roadblock in front of the entire American regime change operation, which, which is a, a long-term plan, which has... Uh, Plans in the future for a lot more than just Syria, right? Yeah, absolutely. If you, if you think if you think about uh, what do you call him? Was it Leslie Clark and his seven mm-hmm. countries in yeah. five years? Or yeah, five, yeah. Um, you know, mentioned that was I think Sudan and um, well, Iran, Iran. Mm-hmm. So basically, if that was if they're going to follow through with this ridiculous plan, I mean, if they if they were just left to their own devices and allowed to do what they wanted to do with. Uh, Syria and Iraq, um, if Russia hadn't stepped in and said no to regime change, that well then you would have had similar attempts at regime change in Sudan, yeah. Iran, who, who knows that's where. And what happens in regime change? What have we seen? 
tens, hundreds of thousands of people get killed. So by stepping in and saying no, there's a good chance that Russia has basically saved the lives, potentially, of hundreds of thousands of people from the the, the excesses, yeah. the predatory predilections of the it's, U.S. warmongers. It's meant to be is the noble lie. It is to believe that godlike powers have been instilled in people like Michael Ledeen, mm-hmm. and that what they do is God's work. So stand aside, everyone, and let us carry on. Well, no, no. Now a line has been drawn, and you will not pass any further. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Well, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, absolutely, that is exactly uh, what we're talking about here. Uh, lives have been saved, and uh, people who otherwise would have fled Syria. Uh, just imagine, for example, if the Damascus was threatened with being overrun by ISIS or Jabhat al-Nusra. We're talking about uh, hundreds of thousands of refugees now in Europe. What if it mm-hmm. had been... Um, Millions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, yeah. The, this this stuff about laying back and, and accepting things as they are, whether it's because of the war on terror or whatever, this is hogwash. Right. Uh, you know, people have agency. Nations have agency. Movements have agency. Uh, you know, um, yeah, I, yeah. That's all I have to say about that. Yeah. Events are moving fast in the Middle East, Naveed. What can you see coming next? What's next? What's next? Um, well, I mean, there's always uh, X factors uh, involved. But right now, um, what I see, uh, and I'm hoping it happens sooner, not later, is uh, you know a, a military defeat, if not for ISIS, and certainly for uh, Jaysh al-Fateh, Jabhat al-Nusra, some of the, and Ahrar al-Sham, some of the smaller uh, groups uh, in Syria. Um, uh, Russian air power has really taken a toll on ISIS as well, uh, to be truthful, in, in, in Syria. But uh, unlike the other groups, ISIS also has a base of operations in Iraq, where um, uh, so far, at least, um, um, uh, Russian aircraft haven't, uh, as far as I know, at least, uh, begun bombing. But uh, the other groups don't. Their 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 uh, base of operations is in Syria, and to an extent in Turkey. Uh, and some of them, I think, Jabhat al-Nusra has just branched off, expanded into Lebanon. But um, yeah, so uh, I'm I'm anticipating a military victory in Syria, and I think some of the uh, some of the fighters of these groups are anticipating the same thing, which is one of the reasons why. They've been fleeing the country for uh, Europe in the past couple of months. Yeah. One of the things I was thinking was, you know, this announcement just the past couple of days that the U.S. is going to send in less than 50 advisors uh, into into Syria. That's kind of boots on the ground and stuff. But um, it's almost like their thought came to me that they're they're getting in there because there's these talks going on, ceasefire talks, something that was on in Vienna. And uh, it seems that there may be they may be going down the road towards uh, negotiating some kind of a federalization of, of Syria, uh, some kind of autonomous, uh, autonomous or semi-autonomous regions or something. Um, that's all to be worked out, I suppose, but um, it's almost like the U.S. is getting in there to kind of establish their kind of zone, basically, that they would then make a claim to, you know, under under the, the authority of some free Syrian army or something like that, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um I hope it I like that. I like. I, I hope so too. I like that as an explanation, and, and I've come across another explanation, which I think is is uh, equally valid. Which is those fifty special forces are basically going to be human shields, right? 
in service of whichever uh, death squad faction the U.S. prefers in a particular region. So, mm -hmm. in other words, wherever they're stationed, um, Russian Air Force is not going to be bombing. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's a strategic and tactical deployment of those forces for the sake of not allowing Russian bombs to fall in a particular region and therefore strengthening, um, again, whichever group uh, is active on the ground in that region and opposes uh, the Syrian Arab army. Right, but there's always collateral damage, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. The Russians can just say, well, you guys, you didn't tell us where you were. Right, we didn't know. Right. I mean, right. <laughs> well, we'll see. Yeah, um, see how it plays out. Yeah, listen, now, now but we're going to leave it there. Um, we don't want to keep it too long uh, for for tonight. Um, I just wanted to ask you a question. Uh, did I hear correctly that you're in Croatia? That's right, uh, Zagreb, Croatia. Okay. And how do you find it there? Is it all good? Uh it's. I mean, it's an interesting place. It's a second world country. It's a country that, since since independence, has actually uh, standard of livings have gone down here a little bit. Uh, unemployment is officially at twenty percent, but probably in reality is actually much higher. Uh, GDP is kind of non-existent, um, but you know. Um, for carpetbaggers like me and my wife, uh, the dollar uh, goes very far here. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and uh, it's an Anglophile culture and an Anglophile right. city, so we get along well here. It's got a great, um, great coastline as well. Yeah, yeah, very, very much so. Very much so. Looking forward to going back there. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any projects on the go? Anything you want to plug? Well, I'm uh, resurrecting uh, my radio show, Bullet Points. Uh, I haven't done an, uh, an episode of it since we've been here in Croatia, but hopefully that'll change this week. Um, Thursday, it's going to be uh, regularly broadcast now Thursdays, uh, 5 p.m. Uh, Eastern Daylight Time. Um, so I'm looking forward to getting that back off the ground. And, and again, I'm, I'm hopeful that the first new episode is this week. Uh, we got to get some technical things situated beforehand, but yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Do you have a, a website for that? Um, uh, uh, there used to be a Block Talk Radio. I'm okay. not sure if we're going to go with with Block Talk Radio or, uh, from now on, or with something else. I would say just Google uh, Bullet Points or Voices of the 99% Radio. Okay. Um, yeah, and and when we've taken care of some technical things, I'll send you all a link, and you can. Uh, promote it. Great. Okay? Yep. All right. Please yeah. do. And yeah. send anything you, you write in the articles to us, and yeah, sure. we'll get them on SotNet as well. And publish, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for the All opportunity. Right. No problem. Right. Thank, Thank you. you. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Have a good evening. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right. That was Navid Nafs, I think, is how his surname is pronounced. N A S R. Um, <clears throat> yeah, he's a, he's a good guy as well. Keyed in on, on oh yeah, and takes, uh, I think we should have him back on for another show. Yeah, get him back on and pick his brains about stuff. Um, yeah, so that was a two for one tonight, folks. We got two for that was our first two for. Uh, we may do it again. It's kind of fun as long as we can get the get the connection sorted out. Um, we're gonna leave it there for this week, unless. Somebody has anything else to add? Do we want to say anything about the uh, downing of the Russian plane? Maybe we should just quickly our ideas on it so far. 
Our data so far are effectively that um, it's open. No, no. Go on. The thing is, the mechanical fault seems totally implausible because planes generally don't um, have catastrophic mechanical faults like that without uh, even the pilots being able to tell anybody uh, what what has um, been happening. Um, so there's no no word from the pilots really. They didn't put out any emergency signal, and the plane just fell out of the sky. Um, so something else basically appears to have knocked the plane out of the sky. The Russians have already discounted the idea of ISIS or whoever else um, shooting it down. So it wasn't shot down. Uh, they seem to even have discounted at this point a bomb on the plane or anything like that. So. Uh, it's an interesting situation <clears throat> how that is going to be explained, if it's going to be explained. Um, in previous events, obviously, in the past few years, where planes fell out of the sky, uh, German wings last year, most recently, um, that was blamed on a suicide pilot that appears to have been totally fabricated. But this one, um, <clears throat> it seems that given the, the spread of the wreckage, that the plane broke up at some point in the air, um, uh, and that's part of this kind of catastrophic failure of all the systems, um, but also, um, you know, even evidence of one child that was found uh, five miles, eight kilometers away. That's, that's a long way. Um, at this point, it's suggestive. If we had uh, uh, something to refer to, a, a reference point for this kind of thing, we could probably explain it. You know, people were willing to go there, but... Uh, it seems that there is a relatively new phenomenon where planes can be knocked out of the sky all of a sudden and even break up in flight um, without the pilots alerting anybody to anything. Basically, a sudden catastrophic event that is in some way natural in nature, that it's not always about someone shooting it down or some man-made event. Mm. Uh, I think that's the, the best case scenario at this point. Yeah. But how that's going to be explained by the Russians, etc. I don't know, or if they'll even explain it. Yeah, it's a very difficult sell, no matter, because it's happening at a time and in a place where it just invites people to go, okay, something's right. going on here. Someone did this to Russia. Right, right, or, right after MH17, for example. Not right yeah. after, but as, as the most recent one. Uh-huh. Uh, right after the airstrikes, you know, a month in and over Egypt. So it's ripe for speculation. Right. Yeah, so we'll be speculating, I suppose, at some point, but um, we'll give it a little bit more time until we have some more data. Okay. Yeah, so uh, thanks to our guests, to Ava Bartlett and Navid Nass, and thanks to our listeners and to our callers, even Miguel, who needs to take a bit of a reality check there. Um, take a stand, take a for stand. God's sake. It's more important than you think. <laughs> we'll be <laughs> testify. We'll be... Uh, We'll be back next week with another show, but in the meantime, check out our um, other shows. Next Friday, I'll show and Saturday, a true perspective. Until next Sunday, then, you all have a good evening. Something good. Or afternoon. Or evening. Or morning. Bye. Okay. See you next week, folks. Bye-bye.